Welcome to the DTB podcast for April 2019, volume 57, number four. My name's David Fazakli, DTB's deputy editor. Hello, and I'm James Cave, DTB editor-in-chief. Our editorial this month focuses on one of the challenges facing clinicians when they prescribe a direct-acting oral anticoagulant. James, do you want to say a bit more about it? So it's been a decade now since the first DOAC or NOAC, and I think, you know, be very happy if someone would decide whether we should be calling these NOACs or DOACs but it's a decade now since Dabagatran was licensed and we now have four and uh, David Erskine in the editorial this month looks at the issues around prescribing these drugs with particular focus on the fact that these are renally excreted and each of these drugs has a different approach to how you reduce the dose with renal function and we just really open up that and demonstrate how complicated that is. So if I were to say, is there any national guidance to advise us on what to do, what would you say? I would say no. In fact, we do at the end of the editorial suggest there ought to be national guidance. I think the difficulty here is that not only do they all differ slightly in the summary of product characteristics on how we should manage them with renal function but also even there's an issue around how creatinine clearance should be measured and I think this this has sort of really led to a real complication at the very heart of managing these drugs you know I think as prescribers we're all very used to the concept of monitoring warfarin dose on a regular basis and I think the big message that we want people to take away from our editorial is you need to monitor the renal function and the dose of patients on DOACs as well. And just because their dose was right at the last medication review doesn't necessarily mean it'll be right now. And as David points out, some studies have looked at what happens to people over time and whether their dose should have changed in line with their renal function and finds that often it sh- That's should right. have That's right. And we, we, um, particularly there's also a BMJ Open study which looked at how you determined creatinine clearance and how that affected whether patients should or should not be on a certain dose. And, and basically the bottom line was up to 15% of patients would be wrongly on the wrong dose because of how, you know, depending on how they were, how the creatinine clearance was measured. So I think it's just important, you know, this is, well, these were novel a decade ago. They're still novel to many of us. And I think it's really important. You know, there are now 800,000 prescriptions a month for these drugs. They are taking over very much in the management of a lot of conditions, particularly atrial fibrillation and preventing stroke. So it's important that patients understand and GPs and prescribers understand the importance of uh, monitoring their use. And while the comfort blanket with warfarin was that you knew from regular blood tests what was happening, you don't have this with these drugs. That's it. That's it. This is all going on under the covers, as it were. And I guess the issue is, even though we haven't got an answer for it, just keep thinking renal function because because of the nature of the population who are receiving these drugs, a lot of them will be at that stage where they need regular renal function monitoring. Indeed. I think I think the two things are, one, I think increasingly these patients are going to need more than annual use and ease. I think many of us are used to sort of hypertensive management doing use and ease perhaps on an annual basis. Six monthly or even more commonly will be important. And the second thing is you're going to have to either have a table with your NOACs listed or you're going to have to keep looking in some sort of reference, be it the BNF or the actual SPC, and remind yourself for each of these drugs, when do you drop the dose? Because unfortunately, it's different for all of them. Okay, thank you very much. 
Our first main article discusses the role of saline nasal irrigation for various conditions. So a bit of a, a low-tech intervention, but but what do we discuss? Yeah, so this I think this is something which we've been wanting to do for a long time, and David King from Queensland very kindly has uh, written a really useful article on what or when should you use saline nasal irrigation. Certainly when I joined general practice 30 years ago, the concept of telling a patient to squirt saline up their nose or to irrigate it was was you never discussed it ever but in the last decade or two there's definitely been a renewed interest in this and what we do is we look at typical conditions such as sinusitis allergic rhinitis and we look at the evidence behind the use of nasal irrigation in those sorts of conditions quality of the evidence quality is very poor and it's it's disappointing isn't it you know because i suppose it's a it's a very simple intervention there's no profit in it for anyone and therefore no one's doing the good trials to really demonstrate benefit i mean there are cochrane reviews for almost all those conditions i mentioned but the evidence is is poor and sparse but although the evidence is is poor by and large this is probably a fairly safe intervention and the theory is if it reduces the need for antibiotics or at least gives people another an alternative intervention that they can try before reaching for antibiotics, we should be doing it? That's right. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it, for what, what the evidence does show we've got is that it does seem to be harmless. There's, there's very little in the way of adverse effects from doing this. It's simple. It's most probably effective. It's cheap. And it does fill that sort of treatment expectation vacuum. You know, patients come to you with sinusitis. They're expecting antibiotics. And it's very difficult to say to them, I'm not going to do that. And actually, I've got nothing else to offer you. Here's an intervention where, although the evidence is sparse, there does seem to be some benefit in some people. And I have to say that, you know, I've got a conflict of interest here because certainly I use uh, saline irrigation myself and I found it very helpful. So, you know, some people definitely benefit from it. And if you look at things like the 2016 ENT guidelines, National UK guidelines, they suggest that uh, saline irrigation has a central place in the management of chronic sinusitis. So the guidelines are beginning to push that way. And this is a really useful article for you to read and understand what the evidence behind that is. And just to finish off, there are obviously proprietary products you can buy, uh, but we also include a recipe. Yes, I mean, they, they can be very expensive. I know there's, there's one particular make that originally came from France, which is costing you over £12 for a canister. But actually, we give you a very simple, as you say, recipe to use yourself, which will cost you nothing more than a few pennies. OK, thank you very much. And our second article discusses the concept of central sensitization. So let's start off. What is it? So central sensitization is an interesting phenomenon, which there's still discussions about it and people are still working their way around it. But it seems to be a phenomenon where you get amplification of neural signaling centrally. And that in turn leads to people becoming even more sensitive to painful stimuli. So to put it simply, pain changes the way your central nervous system reacts to pain and in some people causes amplification. And we call that amplification central sensitization. So for the purpose of this article, we're really looking at people with chronic pain and it provides an explanation of why they are either more sensitive or why it continues long after the original damage has healed. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the benefit of this condition is I think that in the past, I think we've struggled with the idea that people in chronic pain, given that the initial stimuli perhaps is long gone, 
this pain is because you're neurotic or it's because it's all in your mind. And what central sensitization does is it, it explains how pain, previous pain problems can have led to this situation where you are hypersensitized to it. And I think that is an incredibly useful framework because what it also helps to do is it helps you to provide a framework of options around that patient which are not just about drugs so it's about lifestyle it's about other approaches to your pain which will desensitize your brain and therefore help with pain management and the authors identify both the types of conditions that are more commonly seem to be associated with central sensitization but also some tools or tips on how to recognize it and the possible diagnosis? Yeah, so we go into things like the central sensitization inventory, which is a questionnaire that will help you with that. We talk about, as you say, those particular conditions like IBS, migraine, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, where typically, but not always, but typically central sensitization is playing a part in that. And obviously the other advantage of this is that you it often does offer a prognostic element to this. So for example, one of the examples we give is that in someone with central sensitization shoulder surgery for subacromial decompression may actually be a bad idea they may indeed have a stormier post-operative experience because they've got hypersensitization so it is a, a useful article which deals with not just what it is but how you can perhaps pick it up and also how you can start working with patients as a way of changing how we approach chronic pain and I think you know we've done a lot of work on chronic pain over the last year at DTB and we've had some good articles on opioids in chronic pain and I think this is another building block to allow prescribers to look at patients who are often very much at the difficult end of the spectrum when it comes to managing them often you feel pretty hopeless they feel pretty hopeless and I think this is a useful tool to get things moving again for them. Good, thank you very much. And I guess as a little taster, the concept of central sensitization will crop up again in another article which will feature in a month or so's time on chronic cough. So just showing how this whole concept is, is beginning to emerge. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, to read these and any of our articles, please visit our website at dtb.bmj.com. Mm-hmm.